Welcome to the Strut South podcast. Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Bronson Strickland. He's a wildlife biologist and works for Mississippi State University. We're going to be talking about everything with deer, how the deer eat, what they need to eat, how big bucks are produced, all kinds of different things. Great episode, guys. Hope you all enjoy it. Before the podcast starts, I want to apologize in advance. We had a few times where there were some audio quality issues, and that was probably due to the podcast being recorded over cell phone. I'm not sure why there was some type of interference, but if you'll bear with us, and I hope you guys enjoy, and thanks. Hey guys, welcome to the Strut South podcast. Today we have Bronson Strickland. And he is with Mississippi State University, and he is with their deer extension. Is that isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I'm with the. Uh, I work for the Mississippi State University Extension Service, but also the MSU Deer Lab. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so we've got. I mean, there's a ton of questions I could ask you, but before we get into the questions and things like that. I'll let you have the floor and uh kind of give you a uh, give you the floor so you can kind of explain, you know, what you're doing and all that good stuff. Yep, sure thing, Ryan. Uh so again, my name's Bronson Strickland. Currently work at Mississippi State University and so I'm a I'm a professor here. Uh, my job, I work for the Extension Service, which basically means most of my, most, or I should say all of my teaching is what we call outreach versus in the classroom. So my students are the general public with things like doing podcasts and seminars and landowner workshops. That's, that's the role of the Extension Service is to take the university outside of the university and, and to the people of the state. Um also have a, a research component. That's where the MSU Deer Lab comes in. Me and Steve Damaris, the other uh, co-director of the Deer Lab, we've been working together, gosh, we're approaching 20 years now. And um, we like to do research that is going to have an impact. We like to do research that's going to be important for hunters and for land managers. Those are the types of questions that that really interest us. In fact, right before this broadcast, um, I was with Steve and uh, one of our postdoctoral associates, and we were looking at data regarding flooding on the Mississippi River and how that impacts deer and antlers and lactation rates and that type of stuff. So we we just focus our, our efforts on things that we think are going to be meaningful to, to landowners and, and deer hunters. Um, a little bit about me, I was born and raised in Georgia. I got my undergraduate at the University of Georgia uh, in wildlife biology. After that, I went to South Texas and really firmly entrenched myself into to deer management and deer biology. So I went to Texas A&M University, Kingsville, 
um, and did my master's degree there and got to had the privilege to work on a uh, a 60,000 acre ranch working on deer management questions and then after that in 1998 uh, I came to Mississippi State and this is where I got my, my PhD again working with in deer biology deer management questions and uh, after that a few years I went to work for the Department of Agriculture and then a position opened up back in my department here and I've, I've been in this position where I'm at now since 2006 so that might be a little more than you wanted to know, Ryan, but that's kind of a history of, of or my my background. Oh no, that's that's great. I mean, that's uh, sounds like an accomplishment. Sounds like you sounds like you sounds like you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. So, well, great. you're, you're uh, exactly right. That's that's the the privilege I have is. Um, there's always some busy work, like any job. It wouldn't be a job if there weren't a few aspects of it that, that weren't fun. But for the most part, I'm really lucky that I get to spend most of my time thinking about uh, deer biology and deer management and doing research and then telling people about it. So very fulfilling job. Yep, it's it's awesome. And, and that's, that's my thing is I, I really get into the – I'm very interested in – the study of deer um it's just to me i don't think we could ever know enough and um but what i want to get into today um i know you said you grew up in georgia um i don't know if you're aware but they just legalized baiting hunting over bait in georgia uh statewide um, or in certain regions yes Yes, statewide. Well, I'm not going to say statewide because before it was southern zone, you could hunt over bait. Northern zone, you couldn't. And I think in the actual books, I don't know if they said statewide or if they just upped the – zone basically and took the southern zone and moved it further north i got um okay but but it's it's essentially statewide is from what i've you know been told and what i've researched um but i wanted to ask you what was what do you think are the pros and the cons to um hunting over bait well, it's pretty lopsided, in my opinion, um, in, in favor of uh, the cons. I, I think over the long term, there are more cons to doing that than pros, but let's maybe start with a few pros. I, I think the pros <clears throat> are that um, some hunters like it, and so in an age where we have fewer and fewer hunters and hunter recruitment's a problem um you know it, it might get some hunters engaged a little more easily and i and i totally get it i mean i totally understand why baiting would be appealing to some people and that is because most people go to the woods they they want to see a deer and of course if you're providing a a bait that's in theory, going to increase your your opportunity of, of sighting and so forth. Um, a big debate, though, is that 
over time what's going to happen to the resource, what's going to happen to the hunters. Essentially, when all the hunting they know how to do is over bait. And so let's talk about the resource for a second, meaning deer. Um, you know, one of the big issues in Mississippi right now where it is not legal, you know, to quote bait. And when I say bait, and I'm going to use the context of it is legal for me to step away 30 or 40 yards from my stand and, and put out 50 pounds of corn and then climb a tree, you know, 50 yards away. Um, that is not legal in Mississippi. What is currently legal in Mississippi is supplemental feeding. So the purpose, of course, of supplemental feeding is not to bait, but to add nutrition, to supplement nutrition. Um, but hunters in Mississippi can hunt within line of sight of a, uh, of a supplemental feeder. Um, so there are a lot of parallels there. But one of the issues we have and a lot of hunter interest, and believe it or not, we are starting um, potentially this fall, but certainly by winter, we're going to start a research project to examine these very questions, is how does that affect deer movement? And so <clears throat> think about it this way, Ryan. When food more or less becomes unlimited, do deer movement rates uh, diminish? And so when a deer does not have to compete with other deer for, say, uh, first come, first served under that white oak tree, or first come, first served at this place that had been burned and the vegetation is really good, but you see where I'm going with this. When right, deer right. doesn't have to compete with other deer on a time scale, you know, theoretically you could say, well, they can basically stay bedded for longer and just get up after dark or in the middle of the night and go, you know, go hit that pile of corn or whatever, your the, the food source. Right, right. Get what they need. I, I don't yep. think that that's ever been proven, you know, um, but that's something we are aiming to do with with trail cameras and GPS collars and, and things like that. We're going to have some places where supplemental feeding is going on in places where it's not and you know it very well may be that deer behavior may be normal when there's a feeder or not a feeder but then when you add the act of hunting um so right. when they start it gets a week or two or three into deer season they the deer start sensing and they do that hey there's uh there's danger out here there's hunters um that's you know typically when they, they will start restricting their movements uh, both both temporally and spatially, they'll start restricting their movements. And so then it might just give deer a pass where they can stay bedded, they can wait till after dark, they can walk a couple hundred yards and hit the feeder, and, and you don't see them. So um, yep. that's something we really want to examine. So that that's kind of where it can be negative um, for, for a hunter is they think they're doing something good to see deer, and they actually may be shooting themselves in the foot. Now, what's the other big thing with the resource is in our age of, it's not in Georgia yet that you know of, but in Mississippi we've had the one case, but now we're in the age of CWD. And we know for a fact one of the mechanisms by which CWD can be spread is through saliva. And so what if you have a CWD-positive deer that can carry the disease, you know, months and up to a year before they become symptomatic? And now you've got a sick deer and a, a, a well deer um, eating out of the same trough, so to speak. 
And so there's always things like that. Whenever you artificially concentrate animals on a spot like that, you can increase the odds of any kind of disease spreading and things like that. Now, if we even want to look more long-term socially, you know, human behavior, I'm completely showing my bias here maybe with my age, but um, I have two girls, for example, um, and they hunt a little bit with me. I don't know if it's going to end up being their thing or not, but I don't think I really want them to grow up where their only mechanism by which they know to deer hunt is over a pile of bait. I, I, right. I want them. I want them to get engaged in the outdoors. I want them to scout. I want them to learn to identify food, learn to identify that particular white oak or swamp chestnut oak that's dropping. I want them to learn how to hunt, versus to exactly. to only be able to sit in a stand over a feeder. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of my my feelings. And you know, some of that is academic, like we were saying about the the movement patterns and. And then some of that is totally personal. That that's my perspective. Right, right. Well, yeah, and that's that's my biggest um, fear, and I think that's one of the cons is what you were saying is, I, I but I and that's what I hope is I hope it doesn't make people I guess lazy in trying to figure out deer and hunting and scouting and learning all this stuff. Um, that's one thing I hope doesn't happen, and I hope it doesn't turn people into, oh, I can just go out here and put a pile of corn out, and I'm, I'm going to see a deer at least, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that was, that what you were saying about the deer, it, I, I never thought of that, how it could actually change their movement behavior to the negative for a hunter. Um because it makes complete sense. I know you said it hasn't been proven, but I, I wouldn't put it past a, a whitetail to to be like, oh, well, I'm just going to lay here for another hour. I mean, because I know that pile of corn is going to be there. So, I mean, it's not like I have to run and get it now, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that that's the safe thing for them to do. And, you know, that that's what we always, we, we know how deer respond. And <laughs> there's there's actually this, fancy theory but it's really i mean it sounds fancy but it's really simple it's called all animals usually engage in this type of behavior that we call optimal foraging theory and it's real simple it basically mm -hmm. means they want they want to maximize the, the calories the nutrients they can put in their mouth with the least amount of risk and so right. am i going to walk you know a deer may say hey i'm going to wait till after dark i may not get as good of a meal i may not get as much but the number one thing in my life is living you know i've got to stay safe yep you know versus hey i'm going to risk everything to get a little bit of a better meal um and that's literally how most every animal makes their decision is if some place you know imagine a human is the predator you know they're the prey we're the predator and they learn where the predator hangs out. They learn when, what time of day the predator is hanging out. And so they, they modify their behavior because of that. I'm, I'm yep. sure, Ryan, it's probably affected by density. Um, you know, if you had a really, really high deer density where competition for food is really, really great, then there might be some deer that, that roll the dice, you know. Um, but if you had lower density and if you had, you know, reasonably good habitat, you know, naturally you're providing the foods they want, 
you know, you may not see any benefit from baiting in terms of seeing deer during the day. Right. All right. Well, since yeah, that's that's a really great insight. Um, now, since we are on the topic of deer eating, um, I want to I want you to kind of talk a little bit about. Now, you don't have to go into full detail because this is if you wanted to, you could, but I know it would be, you know, it would take you a while to explain it, but if you could explain to me what um, what the deal is with the, uh, I know there was some research you guys did where you did research, a 10-year study on um, different deer from the different regions. Yeah. And I wanted you to kind of talk about that a little bit and talk about basically explaining what it takes for a deer to reach its maximum potential. You bet. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a little recap of <clears throat> what, what we have in Mississippi. And it's like this to some degree in every, in every state. Um, but throughout Mississippi, we have three i mean there's a lot of distinct regions but for comparison i'm going to give you three um we have in, in terms of deer habitat quality and food quality um we have one region of the state that we call in mississippi and louisiana and arkansas we all call the, the delta region and that essentially is our agricultural region so ryan for you that might be like south georgia being around albany or someplace you know just got a right. tremendous amount of agriculture um, spread out over that landscape. Um, coincidentally, right there, it's adjacent to the Mississippi River, and, you know, the, the soils are really, really good. They're very fertile, uh, and that's essentially why it is an ag region, because it'll grow a soybean plant really well. Then we have an intermediate region, which is characteristic of, you know, kind of most of the south. It's um, mixed forest and pasture and things like that. And so there's a lot of variation there. Some places are pretty good, some places not so much. And then we get down into the southeastern region of Mississippi, which is what we call our lower coastal plain. Uh, the soils are not as good, uh, deep sand, typically really acidic, and the primary land use in that region, because you can't really make a living growing soybeans on that soil, but you can make a good living growing pine trees. And so it's dominated by uh, uh, production pine, um, timber. And so over time, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, everybody that deer hunts in Mississippi knows the big deer come from the delta. And the, the smaller deer, you know, the relatively smaller deer come from south Mississippi. And... So the question began, you know, 10 plus years ago was, is this something genetic? Um, is it through the restocking efforts that took place in the 40s and 50s and 60s? Is it just by luck that we have genetically programmed deer living in the Delta uh, and we just have deer programmed to be smaller and have smaller antlers down in the lower coastal plain? So it, it's a legitimate question. And... If it is genetic, if there truly is a genetic link, the the next question was, well, then why don't we just start translocating some of those 
deer programmed to have big antlers from the Delta, why don't we start translocating some of those all over the state so everybody can have big deer? So then you had other people, you know, us here at the university and and MDWFMP, our state wildlife agency, were like, well, this is probably just going to be a nutrition effect. You know, it's real coincidental (laughs) that the place where deer eat soybeans for, you know, five months out of the year are bigger than places that are, you know, trying to scratch out a living, you know, in pine plantations. But but still, the question was legitimate enough to to conduct the study. So um, we got deer from the Delta region, the intermediate region, which we call the hills and the lower coastal plain, and brought them here to campus and, and um, had them in different pens and fed them all the same nutrition. And so the story was that if it's uh, if this is a nutrition effect, and once all these deer from these different regions are fed the exact same diet, they should all have the about the exact same, on average, body size and antler size. Um, and so this is a real important part right here is that um, the deer that we brought to campus were pregnant does. And so our, our state wildlife agency and the university did a fantastic job of capturing pregnant does from these different regions brought those pregnant does to campus, uh, allowed them to have their fawn. And once those fawns were weaned, um, every single deer got the same diet. They got the exact same pelleted ration. And what we found out, Ryan, was um, three years later, those deer from the lower coastal plain that were smaller, remember, uh, sometimes 20, you know, 30 pounds smaller, 20 inches smaller, et cetera, um, they didn't catch up, and we're all astounded. Like, how can this be? We've got these buck fawns from the Delta region, these buck fawns from the hills, these buck fawns from the lower coastal plain. They have had the exact same food in their mouth for three years, yet there is still this clear hierarchy of the deer from the Delta were bigger, the deer from the hills were in the middle, the deer from the lower coastal plain were smaller. Like, what the heck is going on? So, I mean, it completely blew our hypothesis. The biologists, you know, we're thinking it's all nutrition. Like, man, this has got to be, yeah. this has got to, maybe there is a genetic link, you know. Well, luckily, the study was designed to look at two generations. So now we have these deer that were born, that, that were, uh, their mother was in the wild, but they were born in our pen. And then that first generation grew up in the pens. They were allowed to breed, and then they had fawns. When we looked at their fawns at three years of age, the difference between the delta deer and the lower coastal plain deer essentially went away. So we saw 30-something pound increase in those lower coastal plain bucks, you know, 20-plus inches of antler increase in those lower coastal plain bucks essentially where they are indistinguishable from the delta deer. And so we got to digging a little bit deeper, and there's this process. It's been known for a long time in humans, and we're just kind of getting into it with wildlife. It's genetics, but it's called epigenetics, E-P-I, epi, epigenetics. And what we found out is that um, there are still environmental things going on with a mother when the fawn is still in utero, in the uterus before it's born. 
there's all this chemical communication that goes on. And essentially, if mother is having a bad time, if mother is stressed or nutritionally stressed, her body essentially tells the genes in her fawn to fully express themselves or not to fully express themselves. And we're pretty sure that's what's going on. So think about it this way. If you're a doe and you're trying to scratch out a living uh, in south Mississippi, you know, Food quality and abundance just, just isn't nearly as good. <clears throat> and as a consequence, on average, those deer weigh 30 pounds less or so. It's not to your advantage, even though you might have the genes, if you're a buck, to grow to be 200 pounds or 250 pounds. If you're in that environment, that is not to your advantage to grow that big because it's going to be very, very difficult for you to find the nutrition to support that big body. So the information that goes on is even though that buck fawn has the genes to, say, be 150 inches and 225 pounds, when he is in his mother's womb still, the, the, the signals that are going from the mother, the physiological and nutritional stress that she is going through basically tells her son's genes to turn on and fully express yourself or don't fully express yourself. So what we saw then here on campus is that even though those buck fawns that were born from mothers that were reared in the wild, even though they were given the exact same diet, their genes were not expressed. But when now the second generation, their mothers were raised in captivity with all the food that they can eat, and it was like we always call it the, the flip the switch. The switch had been flipped. And said, okay, mom was raised in a really good environment. She's had all the nutrition she can, she can handle. So it is safe now for you, son, buck fawn, to grow those antlers as big as your genes allow and grow your body as big as your genes are programmed to do. That, that's – I may have gotten a little too technical here and there, but that's the oh, no. what found. So the effects of nutrition are, are not – immediate or the biggest effects of nutrition are not immediate um, it typically right. takes two generations and sometimes up to a decade before you start to see the effects right that's 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 great i mean i mean i've i kind of knew of that I've, I've listened to your guys podcast but every time especially hearing you explain it it's it's kind of an eye-opener um now, What's that interesting, bit? Ryan? I'm, I'll get back to you in a sec. But on the human side, you know, oh, this yeah. was this was discovered in World War II, um, and it'll this will blow you away. But this is the same kind of thing. But to bring it back to a human example is that, you know, they found out you know a lot of these places, um, um, you know, essentially famine. You know, cities that may have been under siege and things like that. These adults, um, these um, yeah, middle-aged adults got to be really, really stressed for for a lot of reasons. It's a war, but then also nutritionally, you know, very, very stressed. Um, right. but, then the, but then the war's over. Things get back to normal. They can eat all the food they want, et cetera, et cetera. But what they even found out is those stressful events did something to them. And so even their their children, you know, it affected their children that weren't even born yet. 
Hmm. And so, you know, this like something was bottled up inside of them, this epigenetics thing. And so, and they, they've even, some people have even looked at, you know, grandchildren have been affected. So when a, a population of humans go undergo something really, really stressful like that, that sometimes it can take two generations. In other words, grandchildren before that effect is, is gone. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just wanted to bring it back to a more kind of a oh, tangible no, no, human example. Yeah, that's that's great. It's it, it actually. I think if you want to put it in the most the most layman's terms, you could just say humans and deer alike were were like um, I guess you could say we're like a plant because the more water you give it, the better it's going to grow. The less water it gets, it's not going to grow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But even um, one, but even one step further, it it might even affect your offspring. <laughs> so that that's, right, that's right. what's peculiar and interesting about it is is you think you you restrict you restricted the water from that plant that is living, you don't think it's going to affect the seed. But what we're finding out is not only did you restricting the water affect the plant that is living. That water restriction planted, excuse me, affected the plant's kid. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's a compound effect. Yeah, that's, man, it's, that's crazy. Um, Well, since we were talking about that and talking about deer, you know, becoming larger, bucks in particular, what, um, at what point, in a buck's life, do you do you start seeing signs that you see the deer and you start getting pictures of him and you're like, okay, this this buck here is probably going to be a pretty significant sized deer. Yeah. Um, is there any, is there any type of anything you guys have noticed to where you can kind of notice that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So. You, you always have to qualify this, that deer are, are again, like humans, and you, you can't ever come up with some rule with, um, I mean, just, just take, Ryan, if you were trying to say, uh, hey, by 10th grade, I can predict if that guy's going to be big enough to play football at UGA or Auburn or whatever. Yeah, right. quite quite often they might have attained the, you know, the size. You know, my goodness, they're in 10th grade and they're already 6'4 and 240 or whatever. Um, but there's also there's early bloomers and late bloomers too, right? So there's also right. ones that oh my gosh, their senior year in high school they just you know gained forty pounds or whatever. Same thing with deer. Same thing with deer. So you you will often see deer that that get really big earlier in life. Uh, some won't blossom until later in life. But the average where we say a deer is maximize maximizing is antler development is five to seven years of age. That's typically what we see in the wild, wild studies. That's typically what we see in our research pens is ages five, six, seven, and sometimes the eight is kind of when they're they're at their max. Some of them at four, you know, are, are already there. They're 99% there already at four. Um, what we typically recommend, Ryan, is that by three and a half, you got a pretty darn good indication. So if if you were a betting man, right. it's a pretty safe bet at three and a half of which direction he's going to go. Um, okay. Now there's also Ryan people. You know, um, people my age and older. You get into the whole spike thing. 
um, you know, can you use yearling antler size to predict what they're going to be? You know, are they going to be a superstar later in life based on their yearling antlers? And that is the um, that is the most difficult. That's the most difficult prediction to make, and that's the prediction when you're wrong most often. And that is because there's so many environmental influences on a yearling buck. It can depend on when they were born. Were they born early? Were they born late? What was the acorn crop that year that it was born? Um, how old was their mom? Was this her first birth, or was she, you know, six years old and she's already had, you know, eight or so fawns, and um, she's an experienced mom. So there's so many things that will affect whether that yearling buck is a spike, a short spike, a long spike, a six-point. But the one thing we have seen that's pretty reliable, when a yearling has big antlers, and I mean relatively for a a yearling, they're usually going to be a stud. That is not to say... That's not to say that that spike will not turn out to be a stud. That was something that Harry Jacobson here at Mississippi State, you know, a couple decades ago had clear as day. And he had a couple spikes, and one of them ended up being a, you know, 220-class Boone and Crockett. But huh. all we're talking about really is the odds, you know, probability. Um, if they have really small yearling antlers, you kind of have no guarantee he may end up being big. He may end up not being big. But usually, when they're a yearling and they're, you know, if you got an eight pointer as a yearling in Mississippi, that, that guy's probably going to be well above average at maturity. Huh. That's great to know. I've always wondered about the the spike deal because I see so many spikes, and it seems like every year there's always new spikes, and it's just it's hard to if you have a spike this year, it's it's really hard to know the next year if you see him again. Well, you don't know if that was him or not because they all look the same. Yeah, you, um, you have no idea, and it yeah. all depends on where you're at, Ryan. If you you can be in some places in Mississippi, and ninety literally ninety percent of your yearling bucks can be spikes. But but it's all due to that's when uh, fawning dates are. When fawning dates get later and later in the year, you know, if you have fawns getting dropped in September, uh, like we do here in some places, then more than likely he's going to be a spike. I mean, he he just didn't have time yeah. to develop by the next year. You get into right. other places where fawning's earlier, and that you know that fawn's dropped in the middle of the summer. Well, the, the prevalence of spikes is less there. So it's a combination of, you know, mom, what's the status of mom? Is she experienced? Uh, you might even think, you know, was this fawn born as a twin or a singleton? Uh, so there's so many things that complicate a yearling buck's antler size. So it's just not a safe bet to go in and say, hey, we're going to start culling and we're going to kill all our yearling spikes. Well, heck, if you're in a lot of places in Mississippi, that you, you just killed 95% of your bucks. So it's not a good strategy. Yeah. That's why we say wait till they're three years of age, and at that point you can start start telling where they're going to go. Are they going to grow into a superstar, or is this a, a buck that's you know probably not going to be that great? And I'm not going to feel bad whatsoever if I harvest them at three and a half. Right. Well, with that said, I'm going to ask you maybe a, just a couple more questions. I think we're coming up on time here. 
Um, but I, I do want to get to one question in particular. But before I do, I want to ask a couple more uh, talking about spikes. And you can kind of give me a short answer on this because I know the truth. Um, culling deer for size or herd health, which one is – what's the way to go? <laughs> uh, herd health. Um, uh, well, I, I know you just <laughs> – I know you just asked me for a short answer, and you've probably seen I'm not good at that. But um, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on a, a research project in South Texas. I'm, I'm on the, the, the Ph.D. students committee, and um, this will be coming out uh, in popular articles, and there's going to be a presentation at the, the QDMA National Convention coming up. Man, is that next week or the next down in New Orleans? Um a 10-year study examining culling, and the, the the short answer is it does not work. But you have to qualify what you mean by what did you want from the culling. You know, what were you shooting towards? So most people think if I'm culling these small antlered bucks, I'm going to cause a genetic change. I'm t- and, that, and that's the quote you hear all the time. Shot that deer, took it out of the gene. Right. That right. Yep. Absolutely the- zero effect. None. And and this yep. research project we just finished, it is going to be the definitive proof because um, they actually studied the genetics. <laughs> they actually looked at what were the genetics before, during, and after. And there was no change in, quote, the genetics with all this culling. And the culling was so intense, Ryan, that we had to stop on one one part of the study. We had to stop it at year seven, even though it was planned to go to year 10. We had to stop it at year seven because we were running out of deer. The culling was so intense. Huh. So every the bucks that lived were studs at every age class. Every buck that lived was, stud, was a stud. Now, here's the other side of that coin. Does, does cull – we don't – we don't call it culling in this case. We call it selective harvest. Right. Can you have an appropriate level of selective harvest for the conservation of food? And so you think with a yeah. with with a an appropriate deer density or a deer density, high quality food is typically limited on the landscape. And if I've got two three and a half year old bucks in front of me, and one of them is very above average. He's already a good 10-pointer, let's say. I've got another three-and-a-half-year-old buck standing right beside him that's below average. He's a five-pointer. Those bucks are going to eat a ton or more of food every year of vegetation. Right. And if I'm wanting to maintain my deer density, and of course I'm going to do this with doe harvest as well, but I'm going to look at that three-year-old five-pointer and say, you know what, he's probably not going to turn out to be what I'm managing for and spending all this time and money on. That's a safe buck to harvest, for the purpose, not for the purpose of culling to change the gene frequencies and have bigger, <clears throat> bigger sons down the road. It's essentially, from the standpoint of I'm conserving food on my property. Right. And let me I've give a seen... plug to that, Ryan, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, we've yeah. got a book. We've got a book because th- this question is so common: the culling question. Um, yeah. We we wrote a book about it, 
and it's called Strategic Harvest System. And if you go to Amazon, you can. I mean, it's cheap. It's I think it's a six ninety nine or seven dollars and ninety nine cent download for an ebook. Um, if you just go to Amazon, it's like a hundred and twenty pages, but we lay it all out. Describe it, figures, graphs, to give you the recipe, tell you everything how to do it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, and and also I'll give a, another plug for you guys. If anybody hasn't seen, um, it's, it's Deer Lab, right, on YouTube? Yeah, MSU Deer Lab. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, go to that and look at that video. I think it's. I can't remember who was in the video, but you guys were showing the actual amount or the guesstimated amount of how much a deer eats in one day. It'll open your eyes. Yeah, yeah that is uh, yeah, that... My, my partner, my co-director, uh, Steve Damaris, he did that. Yeah. It will open your eyes. Uh, you, you could go to YouTube or if you just um, follow us on Facebook, if you just do the MSU Deer Lab on Facebook, all those videos are there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was I, that blew me away when I saw the size of that bucket. That tub, it's not a bucket, it's a tub. <laughs> it, I could not believe just a hundred and fifty pound deer. But yeah, yeah anybody hasn't so just go check that out. Um, now, just one more quick question, and then I'll get to a big one, and then we can wrap this up. Um, the I'm going to ask you kind of a – it's almost like a two-part question, but I think the answer to it is going to be one of the questions. Okay. And you'll understand what I mean once I say it. All right. Now, the South, with the South having the most cover, uh, the thickest habitat, I mean, I'm – I'm sure it's the same in Mississippi as it is in Georgia. It's pretty thick, pretty dense. Um, why why is it that there are not more amounts of bigger bucks? And and I'll give you another question with that, and I think it's kind of the answer. And I think it has something to do with the structure of how our season is, I mean, it also has a lot to do with food. Mm-hmm. But if you look at if you look at Iowa, and of course they have the food, but their season is laid out much differently than it is here in in Georgia. I'm not sure how it is in every state, but with Georgia, you've got gun season. Gun season lasts for over two months. Yep. And Iowa is only a, a week or two weeks, I want to say, maybe. And a lot of those and, places, it's only with a shotgun. Right. Mm-hmm. And it and it only comes in for a week at a time, most of the, mostly, and then it goes away, and then it comes back again for a week, and then it's back to bow, I think. Um. But what what do you think? Do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, let, let, let's go back to our three-legged stool of antler development, age, nutrition, and genetics. Genetics, mm-hmm. we have seen time and time again, uh, deer-to-deer, person-to-person, you know, similarly, 
genetics are going to differ, but when you look at a population scale, at, at the scale of, you know, thousands of acres, at the scale of a county or a region or a state, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, all the same. They have, there are genetics there to produce really, really big deer, okay? So let's take that out of the equation. So let's go to the other two things, age and nutrition. Iowa has nutrition, or anywhere, our Delta region, for example, anywhere where you have agriculture, you have nutrition. Um, most places throughout the South, you're just not going to have the habitat quality that is the equivalent of thousands of acres of soybeans. That's not to say that you can't. Hmm. I'm just saying that most of the time that's that's not the case. You can certainly Over, Overall. Right. Overall, that's right. Yeah. So where you hunt in, in your county, you know, if, if you were to look at a, a county in Iowa or a county in the Mississippi Delta versus where you're at, I don't know what your percent agriculture would be, but it's probably pretty small versus some of our counties in Mississippi it might be 80% ag, meaning that's going to be 70% of it's going to be soybean and another 10% maybe corn. Um, so there's a nutrition effect, but but then getting back to your point, Ryan, I absolutely agree with you. Um, the, the other part of the three-legged stool is age. And so when you have heavy buck harvest rates because of the season structure or the weapon that you use, then you are providing an opportunity to harvest a lot more of those bucks at two and three and four years of age before they're able right. to get to four and five and six years of age. So if you were to go to your backyard in your county uh, in LaGrange, and let's say, all right, for the next 10 years, first of all, we're going to carve up about half of this county and we're going to put it in our agriculture. There's going to be soybeans and corn everywhere. And, oh, by the way, uh, your, your three-month hunting season or two months of gun season, we're going to restrict you now where you've only got one week and you're going to have to harvest all your bucks with a shotgun. By default, yeah. by default, there's going to be a lot of bucks that make it through. Even though you can oh, bow yeah. hunt year-round, a lot of those bucks are going to make it through. And so now you're back to your three-legged stool. Now you got older bucks that grew up eating really, really good food, and then you're going to have Boone and Crockett's and Pope and Young's a lot more than you're producing now. Right. Yeah, I've I've seen from from what I can tell, especially here in Georgia, and it's probably different everywhere. But to me, I really think deer, in my area, really don't explode and get their biggest until they're at least five or six. I believe that. Uh, um, but. I I really do. Yeah, our our gun season is is in my opinion it's way too long. I mean, I love hunting with a gun and it's great that it is long, but it's also there's there's cons with that when when you make a season that long. Um yep, there's a trade-off, no doubt about it. There's a trade-off. Yeah, because it does get in hunting with a gun, it does get people into hunting and that's that's what we need more than anything, but but you gotta you gotta kind of set your expectations. Um, I think. Um, now one last question, and we'll wrap this up. I know you you're running. We're running on time. I wanted to ask what 
is the one question that you either rarely get asked or have you, you've never been asked that you wish people would ask you? Well, a <clears throat> little bit of a curveball here. Probably the question that's asked the most is going to be something like culling. Now that's just right. that's, that's one of those things that um, it's kind of fun to think about. You know, while you're hunting, you know, hey, I'm going to do some management here while I'm hunting, and I'm going to kill this this particular deer, and I've made a difference on my deer herd. But you know, people are often shocked or disappointed. Like you just kill the deer if you want to kill the deer, but you're not having any impact whatsoever on genetics. I guess probably, Ryan, flipping it around would be what am I not asked or asked very, very infrequently is probably going to get to habitat management. What what are the things that we can do on the landscape um, to manage habitat better for deer? Um, I just rarely – so, so Ryan, the question I would get is, you know, just culling work. Number two is going to be what should I plant? That one's a real common. Right. What should I plant? What kind of clover's the best? What kind of the, you know? And that's a right. fair question. And I recommend food plots all the time, and I'm I'm all into food plots. But the the question that's rarely asked is, what can we do to our habitat? And and one of the reasons is, it's not a complicated concept, but it takes a lot more work. You know, right. you, can, you can take a weekend or you know a weekend to get the food plot, you know, get everything dissed up or burned down with, with Roundup and all that stuff and plant. But habitat management is, you know, it's kind of year-round. Year-round. It's every year. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's work. But you're probably going to get the most bang for your buck in terms of your time and, and money with stuff like prescribed fire. You know, yep. creating an environment that a deer evolved in. I mean, the deer in the south and everywhere – what they want to put in their mouth, what they evolved eating, are broad-leaved plants. And so I want to create, you know, habitat where I've got to remove a lot of my forest. I've either got to remove some of my forest or thin my forest. Shade shade is the biggest uh, diminisher of deer habitat quality, shade. And so I want to get right. sunlight on the ground so that plants can grow. And when they start growing too big and it starts turning into a forest, three, four, five years later, I'm going to run a fire through it, set it back, set it back to the ground again. That's one of the most simple concepts to improve deer habitat and deer quality that a lot of people don't do. And I understand why a lot of people don't do it. And I'm one of these too. If if you lease the land, you don't have any (laughs) say-so. Right. A landowner, you know, whether it be a corporation or a person, they'll give you permission to plant a food plot, but they do not give you permission to go in and harvest the timber sand and start burning in it. So I, I know, I understand that, but that's probably it, Ryan. I, I may be on the drive home later and think of another one I should have said, but right off the top of my head, that's probably it. I, I, I like that question. I like that, though, because, I mean, that, that, that answer, it, it solves so many problems that hunters have if if you really take managing managing your property seriously um 
because that's probably the best solution for predators. Dabs, yeah. Uh, so, so now you're adding cover. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, that's great. Um, I think that's that's all I have. I don't, I don't want to take any more of your time. So I think um, I think we're pretty we're pretty good. I think we can go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, Bronson, I really really appreciate you coming on and uh, doing the podcast. And I think I really think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Um, now, what before before I let you go, I want you to you know. Get, let you get your get you a plug in. Throw your name out there and tell us, you know, tell everybody that where you can where they can go and check you guys out. Oh man, th- yeah, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. I always enjoy this. So you you have my email. So anytime you want to set up another one, you know, just just let me know and we'll do it. Uh, this is really fun to do. Um, I guess a few things I'd like to, to plug is. Um, if you really want to get into really understanding it, it's one thing to listen to our podcast, which I'll talk about a little bit in a sec. But um, if you really want a manual, so to speak, if you really want to jump in with both feet and understand this selective harvest and how to implement it on your property, and you know, one 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 thing we say too in in our book is there's so many people we've worked with and talked with over the years that say, what am I doing wrong? I've done all this stuff. We do food plots and we harvest does and we just can't get any of our bucks, you know, to above average. It's like they get to three and a half and they stop growing. And this this is the reason, this this harvesting system we're talking about. So if anybody wants to get more into that, we've had literally had somebody uh reply to us the other day and said you know, this is it. This is what my club is doing, and I've read this cover to cover, and I'm, what I'm going to do now is buy a copy for every member of my hunting club so they can understand this process a little bit better. So I would invite, you know, your listeners, if they want to get into that, um, it's called Strategic Harvest System. Other thing is our podcast called Deer University. You should be able to find it on um you know, iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and all that kind of stuff. If you just search Deer University, it should pop up. And we get into, I guess, Ryan, you'd say we, we get into the weeds a little bit more. Um, the podcast is focused on biology and management um, with implications towards hunting. So we, we right. know that people listening are hunters. We know that's why they're interested. And, and what we're trying to do, the goal of that is, Take these concepts in, in biology and ecology, and, and I want to I want to make that meaningful to the listener, so they can implement it, you know, on, on their property. So, take a take a listen to our podcast and uh, social media people that that uh, in the morning or at night scroll through Facebook, uh, go to our Facebook page, uh, MSU, just Facebook MSU Deer Lab Twitter account. Um, we're trying to get our Instagram ramp, ramped up, so. You can connect with us there, and then a, another um, place for information. If you have a question and say, I wonder if the Deer Lab's done anything with that, just go to our website, msudeerlab.com. We have all sorts of publications, articles, uh, point you. We have links to point you here, point you there. But basically, we just try to provide everything that, that most of uh, deer hunters and deer managers want to know about. We try to have it on that website.